Welcome to Landon Wall and Witty on the Road to Qatar. I'm Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining us. We've got reaction from Landon Donovan, Chris Whittingham, and me to the U.S. men's national team qualifying for World Cup 2022 despite a 2-0 loss to Costa Rica. Lands is in San Diego, Witty is in South Florida, and I am in San Jose, Costa Rica, where I'm writing for my Substack newsletter, which you should sign up for free or paid at grantwall.com. Free seven-day trials are now available. Guys, it's good to be with you. This long road to Qatar is over. The U.S. has qualified. How are you? Great. Witty? I'm, I, listen... The U.S. are in the World Cup. I uh, I talked last night about a self-loathing within the U.S. men's national team supporters base at times, and how we're always f- trying to figure out ways that it could be better, and whether or not. And and I think those are real and legitimate concerns that we can discuss here on this reaction podcast. But really, last night was about and reversing the trauma of 2017. It was about qualifying and by any means necessary. They got the job done. They didn't lose by six. And I think we should revel in the fact that tomorrow there will be a draw for the World Cup that has the U.S. in pot two. And I kind of look at the, the the other pots and go, I don't know, I feel like the U.S. have a chance to get out of the group here. Um, and I, I know that's probably looking too far ahead, but that that's a level of excitement that we haven't had around the national team in eight years. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fired up despite uh, some of the misgivings in the performance against Costa Rica. Well said, Witty, and my apologies uh, as I'm driving to work, so my sound quality might be worse than my normal sound quality with my monotone voice. So we're going to get through it. Um, but no, I'm, I am so excited and listen, uh, we now have context around what it means to not qualify. We went, I think six or seven cycles in a row qualifying and everyone just thought it was a foregone conclusion. So a night like last night, you would have said, well, we qualified, but we lost the game and we lost to Costa Rica, blah, blah, blah. We didn't qualify last time and now we're in the world cup. So let's just move on. Enjoy it. Doesn't matter which games you win or lose at what point, as long as you qualify, it's the only thing that matters. And like you said, we're in pot two. And um, I'm excited for tomorrow's draw. I, I really do think, looking at what's happened over the past week or so, if you ask Italy how they felt about performances versus qualification, I think they would say they would prefer to have qualified for the World Cup, even if their performances hadn't been that great. Or even like uh, an Algeria, which just went out in the worst way possible at home right at the end to Cameroon on a, you know, extra time goal. And if you're Algeria, you're not going to the World Cup. So the U.S. is going to the World Cup, having not gone to the World Cup four years ago. And it was interesting to me being on the ground here in Costa Rica, how the sort of transformation took place quite quickly with the U.S. players, where on the field it was very muted right after the game, from their perspective, and that made sense. They just lost 2-0 uh, at a place where they have never won. And yet, by the time the U.S. got to the locker room, it was very clear that a switch got flipped, and they started looking at the bigger picture, and then they started celebrating. And we're seeing pictures and videos coming out from that celebration, and I'm totally fine with them having that celebration because it's f- for a 14-game six-month process that was very arduous three game windows a lot of ups and downs and they got what they came to do they got a spot in the world cup and so i think even this morning now the performance against pan or against costa rica is is 
going into the rearview mirror, and even Christian Pulisic said this after the game when we talked to him, which is, look, you know, it, we're competitors, we hate to lose, and yet people aren't going to be talking about this game for very long at all. What they are going to talk about is we're going to the World Cup. So in terms of, I, I'm almost trying to figure out how to guide our discussion here today, guys, because usually we talk about what happened in the game. Is there much in the game that you want to talk about? For me, I, I do wonder if all the goalkeepers are healthy, if we're, we might have a, a bit of a controversy in that situation. Yeah, so I thought that, you know, in the in the first goal, you can certainly criticize Zach Steffen for perhaps not having a quicker reaction. Although, for me, free headers, it's hard to ever completely fault the goalkeeper. Uh, it, was a, it was a good cross-in uh, from Costa Rica and a good header. Um, so it, it's hard to ever completely fault uh, the goalkeeper in that situation. Beats Walker Zimmerman. Maybe you can criticize the U.S. lack of center back rotation there. Maybe Aaron Long with fresher legs rises to win that. But um, you can say maybe Matt Turner makes that save. You can probably definitely say that Kaylor Navas would make that save. And I think he very clearly burnished his status as the best goalkeeper in CONCACAF by some distance last night. Um, but the second goal, I think, is symptomatic of something we've seen in this window and in previous windows when Zach Steffen comes out for crosses and then we're in scramble drill situations. He seems to kind of thrive in those scramble situations where he's not really in a position. He's just trying to put out the fire and has most often put out the fire, but then in moments where he should have claimed, didn't claim, then recovers and there, there's somebody on the back post who turns in, you're wondering, you know, are there issues with... Zach Steffen from crosses. That being said, I think it's a little bit of revisionist history to not point out, you know, Matt Turner, I didn't think had a great performance in Panama and and, and made some mistakes there. And so there is like a segment of the the media and the fan base that's like anytime Zach Steffen makes a mistake, it's it's Turner, but we we ignore some of the mistakes that Turner has made. I think Greg Berhalter is a huge sample on the two goalkeepers, and we'll see who he picks on the opening day of the World Cup, but I think you can make compelling arguments for both, and I don't think last night is necessarily evidence to scrap Stefan. What I do think it is is evidence that Zach Stefan maybe not playing every week doesn't exactly help his position with the national team and being a consistent performer. Yeah, what you said there at the end, Witty, I think is the point that, that matters. I'm not I'm not so concerned about Zach Steffen or well Zach Steffen making a few interesting mental uh, error or, or decisions last night. Uh, he hasn't been playing regularly, so that's to be expected. What I am concerned about is I don't think anyone expects Matt Turner to be starting for Arsenal in the next six months. I don't think anyone expects Zach Steffen to be starting at City for the next six months. So what happens if you go into Cutter? We need to decide what we're going to say, by the way, Cutter or Qatar. I'm going to say Cutter. Uh, what happens if we go into Cutter and those guys have played a combined four or five cup games in the last six months? Now what happens, right? And, and that is a big problem because you need, you need a goalkeeper playing well if you're going to have a chance to, to do well in the World Cup. Every time I participated in a World Cup, and we did well. It's also partially because we had great goalkeeping. So it's a big deal. What happens if one of those guys gets a loan somewhere and starts? I mean, like, if you're Matt Turner, would you push for Arsenal to loan you out next season? If I'm both of them, I do. Yeah, I mean, this is... You You guys have seen this every World Cup. 
cycle, there is a player or two who are at a club where they're not playing and they figure out a way either to get transferred or to, or, or get loaned somewhere so they can play. I think it's crucial. You need to be playing. I mean, those two you would think are cemented to go to the world cup, but there are a lot of guys on the bubble. If you're not playing, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be named to the roster. So there are some big decisions coming ahead this summer for a lot of players. I, I would be stunned if Stefan in particular left Man City just because I think he is firmly cemented as their number two. I, I'm not sure that they have a good deal of interest because, like, who right now is going to be looking to go be somebody else's backup? I think a lot of people, um, and this is actually a rare summer dynamic. It's I, I, it's usually in the past happened in January where, you know, World Cup year, you know, tr- you're, you're going to try and get some starts. But um, I, I think Stefan will remain at Manchester City. I we, You know, with Matt Turner, I guess we'll see what happens with Burnt Leno and imagine that, you know, he, he's going to go and he's going to go find somewhere else to play and Turner will step in as the number two. Um, and if he has any desire, by the way, kind of dark horse candidate is Ethan Horvath. And I know that it's um, some distance away, but like Forrest where he's playing in the championship are three points off the playoffs uh, for promotion, and they have three games in hand on a lot of their competition. So there's a chance they end up in the promotion playoffs. He's been playing every week. What if they get promoted into the Premier League and Ethan Horvath is their number one goalkeeper? Then all of a sudden you have a, you have a third candidate in there who might be playing more often. Um, I think Greg has made it pretty clear based off of starting Stefan against Mexico in November when Stefan hadn't played much um, against Columbus in that third game of the window in October um, when both of them had played and he went for Stefan in a must win at home against Costa Rica and then he made like a he, he made an early mistake in that one. Um, I, I think Greg Berhalter prefers Zach Stefan and I think without any other uh, factors involved here, I think that Zach Stefan in all probability, will be the number one come the first game of Qatar. I also want to ask you guys about Greg Berhalter, because in the end, his tenure will obviously be judged by how the U.S. performs at the World Cup itself. But don't you think this occasion upon qualification for the World Cup, when it wasn't done by his predecessor four years ago, that this is an occasion to say, good job, Greg Berhalter? Absolutely. I struggle in today's world where everything is black and white and, you know, someone's great or they're terrible or there's nowhere in between. When, when there were some uh, bumps along the way early on, it's fair to, for people to criticize and question. But if you just now look at what Greg has done, and I look at it just kind of anecdotally, what this team looked like after the first qualifier versus what they look like against Panama. I mean, the growth that all those players have made, which they were going to make anyway to some extent, but how much Greg accelerated it and built a real trust and belief in the team is phenomenal. They're all young kids. Like These are not grown, savvy professionals that have been playing for 10 years. And I think Greg's done a phenomenal job. So I I think there are many levels to this. I, I, I agree, Landon, that he achieved what ultimately you want him to, which is get the team to the World Cup, manage some really difficult situations uh, in terms of injuries throughout, in terms of this team being incredibly young, in terms of a lot of the guys even who are making their way towards Europe. Like, we think of Yunus Musa as someone who's a key contributor with the U.S., but 
At Valencia, he's been slowly working his way into a starting role. He's had ups and downs. Even Sergio Dest has had ups and downs. Weston McKenney in the early parts of qualifying had ups and downs, and we didn't know if Max Allegri was going to trust him in the way that Andrea Pirlo did at Juventus. Like, there's all kinds of situations where, yes, we think of the U.S. player on a certain level, but they're only beginning the journey. Gio Reyna coming back from a massive injury. There's all kinds of things that have happened where it's not been able to full throttle performance all the time. However, I I do think that the U.S. fan does have a right, given the level of club that some of these players are at, to to, to think to themselves, maybe the U.S. could have done more here. Maybe the U.S. shouldn't have drawn at home against Canada. Maybe the U.S. should have done more away from home in some of these qualifiers against Costa Rica and against Panama and against Jamaica, where they didn't take maximum points. So I, I, I also understand that criticism as well of this is a really talented group of players and maybe there is more here than we're seeing from the national team and maybe there are players who are in who aren't in the national team that could be um or maybe the right guys aren't playing in, in some people's minds so I, I do think that there is more on this bone certainly when it comes to the talent and I do, th- and I do understand when fans watch last night and go, "Oh, you know, maybe qualifying for the World Cup on goal difference ahead of Costa Rica is maybe not where this this program should be a little bit better than that." And I get it. Sure, but can't I mean, isn't there always more or always better? I think the the reality is, I, I've said this early on, when you play teams matters, right? As to where their mental state, emotional state, Costa Rica win these last two games. Uh, before actually they won all three games this this cycle but canada was basically qualified el salvador had nothing to play for the u.s had basically nothing to play for right so when you play when you play games matters and i still think it was i think i still think it was a job well done is there more in there of course there is there's no question and by the way let's just talk about i was going to say the elephant in the room but the absolute lion not in the room or the lion in the room, which is Weston McKinney wasn't there, and he's been their best player. And so if, if we have Weston last night, it's probably a different game. I think we win in Mexico if Weston's there. Um, he makes a massive difference to this team. And I know every team deals with injuries, but that is a big piece of it too. I will point out here that Alfonso Davies has been gone from Canada for a while, and and they've done quite well results-wise without him, uh, actually. So, But I, I get yeah, what you're but saying. Grant, an outside back is much different than your central midfielder and your leader and your captain and your workhorse. And I mean, it is different. Davies plays everywhere, though, man. Well, he's an out. He's a wide player. Trust me, I would, I would play him, and I'd play him in goal if I had him. But everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that seventy-five percent of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over thirty-five, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. So it, it's really fascinating. Greg Berhalter and his staff and other U.S. soccer people flew overnight from Costa Rica, where I'm still stuck, by the way. Um, and uh, he just did a press conference. We're recording this on, at uh, 9.48 a.m. Eastern on Thursday. So Berhalter already had a press conference in the last hour from New York, and now he's jumping on a plane to fly to Qatar. And I'm going to say Qatar, not Qatar or Qatar or whatever, because when Qatar Airways was doing ads on Fox for the Gold Cup, even Qatar Airways, the voice said Qatar. But so Grant, was- but Grant, you just nailed it. The, the, the third one, the third one that you said was the correct one, Qatar. It's kind of how they say it. I'm not Wolf Blitzer, man. I, I, I'm not like gonna like do that. So if they're saying you if are Qatar in Airways... the situation room, <laughs> you know right. me. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm I'm gonna try. Qatar. I'm gonna try and stick to it. Qatar. I mean, but it just sounds. It just doesn't fit with normal patterns of English speech. If you're like, oh yeah, when they when they when the U.S. when they get when they open up the group against Belgium in Qatar, like that doesn't sound like how you would speak a normal sentence. So I'm I'm I'm, about, I'm deliberating that on on that one as well. If Qatar Airways wants to spend a million dollars sponsoring this show so that mm. we can continue doing this moving forward, which I would very much love to do, I hope this isn't our last episode. I'll say whatever they want to say. Uh, <laughs> wow! So, point. so it's a million. So that, so that's the price. A million's your number. Everyone's got a price. <laughs> <laughs> well, the million's your price. Doctor Gounder must be doing very well. <laughs> but okay, so Greg Berhalter is flying to the host of the World Cup, and. <laughs> They're going to have a draw. The U.S. is in pot two. This is Friday at noon Eastern. And if the U.S. is in pot two, that means the U.S. is basically expected to be in the top two in its group. So they're going to be expected to get out of the group. And, and that's interesting to me. And obviously, you have no control over which teams the U.S. draws. So that will be a lot to talk about starting on Friday. But if you're Greg Burhalter, let's start with Landon. If you're Greg Burhalter, what are the most important things for you to do in the months between now and the World Cup? And I'm asking you, Landon, to sort of use your own personal experience on what these next months are in the transition between qualification and the World Cup itself. In a perfect world, and I know the world's not perfect, you find a way to get a three, four, five, six, seven day camp um, with a match in Qatar at some point with, with your group, as much of your group as possible. I don't know that that will be possible. I don't know if that's on the agenda or something that's that we're able to do. Um, but that would be ideal because any way you slice it, not ha- having not been to a country, not understanding um, a little bit of culture, a little bit of what you're going to see is a big disadvantage. And I think back to in 01, we played a game in South Korea prior to the 2002 World Cup. And that helped massively because we had already been there. Uh, in 06 in Germany, everyone had played in Germany, so it wasn't a big, big deal. But in 2009, we had the opportunity to go to the Confederations Cup in South Africa a year before the South Africa World Cup. And that was huge. And then actually in 2014, the, uh, in or was it 2013? No, 2014. The whole team had a preseason in Brazil, which was crucial when the team went back to Brazil. So that that would be ideal. Um, 
otherwise, you know, Christian said it at the end with, with Jenny Chu at the end uh, with his interview, he just said, you just have to get back to your club teams and perform well. Um, the, the best thing you can do is be in good form when the World Cup starts. And that more than anything else, that is what matters most. But Grant, to answer your question with Greg Berhalter, so they have the Nations League coming up uh, ahead of the summer. I'll be curious what kind of squad he picks. It's the end of the club season. It's the, you know, they, they've already played 14 internationals together over a period of six months. Do you need to call in the A squad for that? Or do you let guys rest uh, ahead of what's going to be a long season next year? Or do you continue to try and drill your principles and try and, and build squad cohesion, maybe in games where um, you're not going to be completely tested and you can, you can try out some new ideas? I'll be curious how he handles that. But uh, really, you know, it, go, going back to that goalkeeper question we talked about earlier, if you're Greg Berhalter, you're probably going to have some serious conversations with the key members of your squad about what those guys do at club level. What happens with Ricardo Pepe at Augsburg? Let's say they get relegated. Are, are you are you trying to find another club for him, or do you say try and stick it out in the two Bundesliga and score some goals? Um, are you pushing guys who are currently in MLS like Jesus Ferreira to maybe try and get a move in the summer to go and take a step up and play uh, a few games at a higher level? Um, how all these guys manage their club situations? I do think Greg Berhalter is, I, and and Landy, you can correct me if I'm wrong, will at the very least play a consultancy role in what is most important for me to be doing, and also maybe identifying because I would imagine you know we can probably draw up a squad right now and you know maybe get 18 of the 23 right but what happens with those last five and I believe I heard in the Guardian podcast it's 23 not 26 uh so so what what does the remainder of that squad look like does John Brooks come out and and play in the summer so he can reintegrate with the national team does Joe Scally get enough first team experience at Gladbach to become one of the contributors at fullback uh are are there going to be new players that step up between now if, if Daryl DK gets back to fitness is he back in the striker conversation there's all kinds of players that could impress between now and then, but Len, I'll be curious, what is the role of U.S. soccer, Greg Berhalter, Ernie Stewart, Brian McBride in consulting yeah. players on their club situation to best have them in position to compete at the World Cup? It's a great question, and it's a great point. You know, thinking back to 2014, Jurgen had a massive role in kind of guiding guys. Uh, you could say guiding or you could say forcing guys to to move or play or get to certain places so that they would be in the best possible position either to perform well in the World Cup or to make a World Cup team. So it's a really good point. And there are a number of guys who don't play regularly right now who need to be playing regularly if they want any chance of being picked and or any chance of being successful in the World Cup. And you, you can't you can't overestimate how challenging it would be to not play real club football for three, four, five, six, seven months prior to a World Cup. That would be that would be devastating. So if I'm Greg, um, that's you know, that is that's item one, two and three on my list right now is to make sure that guys understand how important that is and that they are finding a situation with club teams where they can be playing week in and week out leading into the World Cup. Now, as I understand it, looking at the calendar for June, it's a couple of Nations League games, but there's also a couple of friendlies. And so Greg Berhalter talked about it down here in Costa Rica that he's wanting to get friendlies in June and September against high-profile teams from different continents. He played a lot of CONCACAF teams, but like he wants to get friendlies against European teams, South American teams, 
African teams, maybe even an Asian team, he said. So, uh, you know, that's going to rely on U.S. soccer to arrange those things. There's already some reports that Argentina may come to North America for friendlies against Mexico and the United States. So that's something I'll be looking forward to. Yeah, but Grant, the draw will impact that, my guess. You know, yeah. um, Tom King and Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride do a fantastic job of uh, all of these things. My guess is that they've got a handful of teams that they would are ready to pull the trigger on. Um, but the draw will impact that. You know, if you get... Again, making it, let's say, Argentina, you're not going to play Argentina then in a friendly. You might play whatever, Ecuador. You might play somebody or, you know, teams that are out of the World Cup now, Colombia or Chile, something um, that somewhat resembles, of course, you can't resemble what Messi plays like, but resembles the style of the type of team you're playing. If you get an African team, then do you, you know, do you book an African team? Uh, for one of these friendly so i think the draw will have a big impact on on what happens i'm fully expecting the u.s would draw ghana at the world cup by the way um, <laughs> oh, just, uh, no no but i, I mean I, I i expect them to exhume the corpse of asamoah jean uh but I, I i know the iu brothers get them out of my life it's enough of the iu brothers we've had them enough oh man but um also, too, I mean, are there any players that you think might be in a position who have not really been involved in this World Cup qualifying campaign for the U.S. to be part of the team for the World Cup itself? Yeah, I don't have the I want to be careful here because I don't have the context. And, and Greg has seen all these guys up close multiple times. So it's, it's easy for us to say, oh, Joe Scally, but Greg might Greg might just not be high on him for whatever reason. Um, I do think that is one name. Uh, another just, and it's what I said the other night is there's still, nobody has grabbed the number nine spot and said, this is mine. So if, and this is a big, if, and he plays for a huge club at Norwich, if Josh Sargent <laughs> is able to get on a run of form or any, any domestic American striker is, you know, I know nobody wants to hear this, but if Jossie's artist tears up the league throughout the rest of the season, somebody could find themselves not only making the roster but could be starting and that is the one position where if you have a player playing well who is is scoring goals on a weekly basis you have to really consider playing that player um no matter who they are so that that's the one the one spot i think we could see someone sneak in that we're not expecting yeah i i would definitely look towards that striker position i think daryl dk is certainly in with a shout um, I, I can't. I can't really see too many others. Like, I mean, Matthew Hoppy hasn't played for a long time. Um, maybe. I mean, if you're looking at a young player that can maybe just get on a run this season and and give Greg Berhalter a decision to make, you look at someone like to me like Cade Cowell at San Jose, who I've really rated for a long time, but he seems more like you know under twenty World Cup. He's still got steps to make. Um. This is going to sound ridiculous, but maybe Josie Altador gets on a run once Adam Buxa gets sold in New England, and all of a sudden he gives Greg Berhalter a decision to make, and finally he can play at the World Cup. Um, I would definitely look towards that striker position. I would definitely look towards uh, John Brooks as well uh, as someone who's been in the camp and, and could go again. Um, I... I Again, this this one is probably too early. I think the backup left back position is probably one where they can afford to improve. We'll see where George, George Bello gets on at Armenia Bielefeld, or maybe uh, I've I really I've really enjoyed watching Kevin Paredes who who went to Wolfsburg. If he starts to play, uh, maybe he can get in there. Um, but if you look at the eleven, 
I would definitely say, you know, Zimmerman is in at center back. Miles Robinson is in at center back. Serginho Des is in at right back. The goalkeeper is clear. The three in midfield is clear. Pulisic, Reyna, Weah are going to be among the attackers that go from the start. So I guess maybe you look towards players that have some positional versatility um, and and we'll see where that develops over the course of the next few months. But I can't really see the shape of who is actually going to start on opening day that uh, changing that dramatically. I'd say right now you can probably pick eight of the 11 that'll start on that day. That's very Gus Johnson of you to use the phrase opening day. Um, <laughs> what, like, <laughs> you mean the World Cup? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, no, like opening day okay. of the the first game of the group. Okay. You mean first pitch? First pitch. <laughs> That's the ball game. Um, so so it, it's really interesting. I guess one thing one thing I'm thinking is is that because this is such a, a young U.S. team compared to previous editions, there might not be that many young guys or as many young guys that might emerge over the next few months because we've seen a lot of young guys already with this mm-hmm. U.S. team. And I, 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 my question for you then maybe is, as far as a likely starting lineup, and you have to hope there aren't going to be any significant injuries, who do you really expect to see in the starting 11 for the U.S. once the World Cup starts? Yeah, this I, I think this will get shaped based on how Greg decides to use Christian. Um, let's just assume everyone's healthy. I think we have a, well, we'll see what happens at goalkeeper, but we have a decent semblance of what we think the back line will look like. Sergio Anthony, probably Miles and Walker. And then I, I have, I think the best we have played in the midfield is with Tyler Weston and Musa. I think they complement each other well in a lot of ways. And then the big question is how, how do you use Christian to his most effectiveness? And it's probably going to be, you know, we don't know if we'll have to see what the striker looks like, but it's probably going to be some mix of Christian with either Wea or Aronson. Um, what am I missing anymore? Oh, Geo, geez. Yeah, it's going to be, it's probably going to be two of those four, depending on form, how everyone's playing. I, I think you could pretty much pen in Christian unless you're really stupid. And then it'll be, it'll be one of those other three who are probably going to each play, you know, significant minutes in the world cup, just depending on their form. So do you play Christian off the right? Do you find a way to play him more centrally? You know, do you play with some sort of, you know, a box in the midfield with two strikers? Um, that's something they do need to work out. I like the idea of Christian playing wide on the left and, and coming inside, which he naturally does because Anthony Robinson is, is so dynamic going forward. So if they can get really good understanding there, that could be really explosive. Um, but I think that's going to be the key. I agree. I, I, my guess would be, and, and I hate to say this because I mean someone's a World Cup, someone's World Cup dream won't come true. But not everyone's going to be healthy for this. It's just the reality of the number of games that we played, the nature of the sport. Um, so I, I do think that maybe some of these selection issue, issues do get solved by players just not being available, but I still think this is going to be incredibly tough because you're going to have to leave out some key contributors. Um, you mentioned the idea if you're not playing Gio Reyna as one of the three in midfield, and I can understand why, given how well uh, the three there that have combined, then you're basically saying it's either Reyna or Weah. 
and both of them have been really important. You're basically saying it is either Pulisic or Aronson. Um, the question is, do you turn any of those guys into the guy that you play up top, whether it's Reyna in kind of a false nine yeah. position, Pulisic in a false nine position, and do you solve your problem of not having a striker by not playing a striker, which is the solution that Pep Guardiola has come up with at Manchester City, albeit in a completely different context, and that's an incredibly difficult system to drill, and you need a lot more time than national team managers get. So I would imagine they'll pick a striker, and that would force Greg Berhalter to leave some really key contributors over the course of this qualifying campaign on the bench, but is that a good thing? You have strength and depth. You have options to change the game yeah. from the bench. And I, I think we, you know, if you look at the national team context now with five subs, I would imagine that that won't be as big of a concern now. Yeah, one thing I've learned, um, I've learned a lot in three years now as a as a coach and a manager is you don't always put your best 11 players on the field at the beginning of the game. And the, the, way, the way the game can change in the second half can be very drastic. So think about Qatar. Um, think about still heat. I know it's winter, but still heat. Um, guys tiring at the end of games and then can you put on I me mean, we saw how effective geo was at the azteca coming into a game right so you don't always you know you have to do some convincing so, so players understand that but you don't always put your best 11 players on the field to start the game maybe you put your your 12th best player and you bring your 11th best player off the bench to impact the game in the second half and think people get caught up in what's the best 11 and it's it's what's the best 12 13 14 15 to help you win the game and in what combination and also i i do think that it's not just about who are the best 11 it's what's the best combination of 11 because you land in in san diego you have the chance from the off season to say well I, I'm going to assign a different kind of role to all of these different kinds of players, and I want to bring in this kind of striker and this kind of winger. But Greg Berhalter does not get that opportunity. You're handed a group of players who happen to be born in the same country, and you try and figure out the best way to deploy them. So I do think that it, it's about not just saying, well, can we get Pulisic, Wea, Reyna, Aronson, McKinney, Adams, Musa on the field at the same time because you can't. That doesn't make sense. So how do you how do you build a team that makes sense based off of combinations, not just based off of getting the most talented players on the field? This team is going. It reminds me a little bit of the 2010 U.S. team that you were on, Landon, where the the forwards, you know, the center forwards weren't really determined until not long before the tournament, and Hercules Gomez and Edson Buttle came on. Uh, Robbie Finley uh, was on that team. I mean, like players that were not superstars and the best players on that team from an attacking perspective were starting out wide and coming in, uh, you and, and Clint Dempsey. And, and Bob Bradley built the team around that. And so there are a few similarities, I think, you know, if Christian and whether it's Geo or, or someone else out wide are, are some of your best players. Um, I, I think that's just an interesting thing. Um, and I also remember being very surprised when Bob Bradley did not take to the World Cup at least one of Connor Casey or Brian Ching, right? Because I, I kind of assumed that they would want to have some sort of aerial presence like that. And so I do wonder you know, what's going to happen with, with Burhalter's decisions on, on some of these players. And, and like, I, we've already talked about how wide open it could be 
at the striker position. And you also have to, there is a, a merit um, argument too, and, and that impacts the whole group. So if, if you're forcing to bring a striker or a player who doesn't really, you know, someone else deserves it, even though they don't play that position, there is a piece of it that can affect the group. Like, well, you left this guy off just because you're trying to force another striker onto the roster. So I think if, if Greg feels like he can find a way to, you know, let's just say he brings two strikers um, and get enough out of the other players around him, maybe you bring another wide attacking player um, or maybe you bring another outside back, somebody who can, who can actually impact the game because the reality is, is, Yes, there are 23 players, but very, very, very rarely do all 23 players play in a World Cup. Very rarely. And so what you do with those last few spots isn't always based on talent or position. Sometimes it's just based on who's a great guy to have on the team. Frankie Hayduck is the quintessential example of that. Um, were there guys a little more talented in some of the World Cups? Probably. But if you're going to spend 30 days in a hotel... I can promise you the one guy you want there is Frankie Hayda because he's going to make you happy every day. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder who the the uh, the modern day equivalent of Frankie Hayduck is. Um, well, yeah, I guess I guess question. we can we can we can deduce that uh, from the squad. Uh, I, I I do want to ask you guys: Do you think that based off all the conversations that we've had, based off the way that the U.S. left the Costa Rica game and 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 leaves qualifying now, what, do you think that U.S. fans should be feeling optimistic? about their hopes at the World Cup? Or is it too early and you're looking towards 26? Do you, like, do, do you think, Grant, that the U.S. fan and that the way that we'll talk about the team for the next eight months is going to be surrounded by optimism and what the U.S. can do or where their shortcomings have been and if, if, if the U.S. have hopes to get out of this group? It depends which section of the U.S. fan base you talk to because you're going to get different uh, perspectives depending on that. But... If, should there be optimism around this U.S. team? I think there should be because it's so young and because the ceiling is very high. And I'm not just talking about 2026. I know that there's going to be more experience in that team for 2026. And the idea that that team could make a run deep into the tournament as the co-host the, with the support that comes with that, I get all of that. But I think if you then take that to say, oh, 2022, don't expect too much, and it's really just a dry run for what's going to be big in 26, I think you're missing a real opportunity in 2022 because I think the World Cup more and more every time is a young man's sport and young teams that can have really high le levels of athleticism can... Uh, you know, play on just these amazing surfaces that, that we haven't seen in CONCACAF and, you know, are playing at a high level in Europe, like so many of these U.S. players are, Champions League level players, that I think it would be a mistake to write off 2022 as, oh, they're too young and this is just about 26. I think there's no reason that this young U.S. team couldn't make a run in 2022. Would a qualifying and the World Cup could not be more different. I, I cannot, I cannot overstate that. What this group of young men just dealt with in qualifying will not in any way resemble what the World Cup looks like. First of all, the the beauty of these three game weeks in qualifying will quite accurately resemble a World Cup, but I think that's the only resemblance. So that is actually very helpful because 
turning around and traveling and playing quickly in three in three short blocks is really important. But other than that, there is absolutely no resemblance. And I, I mean, we've said this multiple times. I think a lot of people think this. Uh, this is a team much, much better suited to a World Cup than it is to qualifying, just based on their age and inexperience in qualifying and, and not having not been through those battles. So I think there's lots of optimism here from me. Um, I mean, let's just be honest, depending on which social media platform is where you're going to get, whether there's optimism <laughs> or pessimism. So um, I think we, we, we know how, how that goes. So um, I think there should be optimism. I, I think when this is what we used to do when we were with the 17s, we would, we would play against big countries around the world. And a lot of them we would beat and we would say, well, why can't we beat these guys? Or why can't we play in the same leagues they play in? If there's not a player in the world outside of, you know, Messi, Neymar, Mbappe, Cristiano Ronaldo, who any of these guys will fear in any way, right? They've played against a lot of these guys. They played against guys who are similar to these they're, they in their leagues, they see them every week. They're not intimidated at all. West McKinney doesn't. West McKinney doesn't care who he's playing against. He thinks he's better, and in most cases, he is. Christian the same. So, I think there should be a level of optimism for sure, and I think there's a high level of confidence in this American team that they can go do something pretty special in the World Cup. I agree. I, I don't tend to kind of take my cues from social media in this respect. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to form my own opinion. Uh, I was really interested last night as the game was getting away from the U.S., like how quickly, you know, everything becomes DEFCON 1 and every mistake gets hyperanalyzed <laughs> and we have to figure out, you know, what's mm-hmm. going on. But, like, I'm trying to figure out from my own head, did the U.S. do enough? And, and I understand what you're saying, Landon, which is like, I mean, a lot of people pointed this out that the team that went to the quarterfinal and should have gotten to the semifinal in 2002 qualified in third. The team that uh, went out in the group in 2006 finished first in qualifying. That these two things are not necessarily related, but they are competitive games that we are using, you know, that are, are better judged than friendlies, that are a better judge than anything we get to see uh, with the U.S. playing together. And perhaps the answer is we just don't know that there there is there is no amount of football that can be that can be played that bears enough of a resemblance to the World Cup that you really gather enough data. But yeah. um, I, I I just wanted to see more over the course of this qualifying. I wanted to see what I felt like the U.S hitting their ceiling, the way that they did against Mexico uh, in in Cincinnati, the way that they played against Panama. I just want to see a few more of those performances to really feel like, all right, the U.S. are going to go when they play these top-level teams. They can hit their level, um, but uh, you know that's probably only something they can really know for sure once they go to Qatar. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't disagree with that. And my my one my one area of pessimism is at the nine, um, mm-hmm. because when when you know I'm. I was at Azteca, right? We were at Azteca. We, 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 saw, we saw that game. That was a very high-level, fast, competitive game. Um, but what we lacked was killer instinct in front of the goal. And, and Christian has it, but we didn't have that from a nine. And when you get in a World Cup, I mean, we're talking about Asamojian and IU and <laughs> the nightmares that brings. But if you have a killer in front of goal, that changes everything. And these games are going to be so tight, so fine on the margins. Um, you, I would, I would feel much, much better if we had a dominant nine. And I'm sure every team in the world says that, but that's that's how I feel. Well, I just want to say thank you guys for doing this. I have really enjoyed doing these podcasts after every World Cup qualifier. This is the 14th out of 14. I've learned stuff, and I run into people, fans 
who like to listen, they say, and they've learned stuff too. So, um, so thank you. And, and we'll have to, uh, talk to John Skipper and see if there might be a way to, uh, continue these, uh, leading to the world cup and at the world cup itself, because I certainly hope we can continue. I appreciate that. And if, um, if your agent gets you a million dollars, please try to get me a million as too, uh, as well and witty as well. Um, I know he's struggling down there in South Beach, uh, but no, it, it, it's been a lot of fun. And I, I do. Ho- I really do hope it's not the last time. I hope we all are. I know you and I will be there. I hope witty you're there too in Qatar and um, should be a, a great ride. So thank I, uh, you guys. I- I, if you had told me uh, a few years ago when I was watching the U.S. Uh, at a sports bar in the World Cup in 2014 that I'd be doing a podcast with Grant Wall and Landon Donovan, I would have said you are absolutely out of your mind. So uh, it has been a distinct pleasure for me uh, that you guys allow me to spew nonsense on here when you guys have way more credibility. So uh, I, I, I very much appreciate this experience, and I, I agree. Let's do this in Qatar. And Witty, let's be honest. We're not all cracked. We're not, we're all, we're not all we're cracked up to be, right? <laughs> You're more. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> You've seen the real us now. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right, guys.